this morning, as we look at parts of Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 and, and really chapter 11, the title of the message is Pioneers and Settlers. Pioneers and Settlers. Now, there is a, a game that is very popular right now called Settlers of Catan or something. I've never played it. But those of you that do, you're probably psycho about it because most people that I've met that are into it, they're like, they're really into it. And so um, there are pioneers. And a pioneer, when, when you think about the United States and you look, about, you, you look at them going west, you remember the covered wagons. I remember there was this uh, one black and white cowboy show called, um, called Wagon Trail. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Wagon Train. Thank you. Wagon Train. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw the re- wagon train trail. Yeah, one of those. And, and as they would go from uh, east coast to west coast, there were pioneers. And, and the pioneer spirit is, is a spirit that says, I will go to a new place um, where there's no, there's no civilization, there's no stores, there's nothing convenient, and we're going to blaze a trail to get to a new area. And sometimes pioneers are absolutely necessary when it comes to the work of God. We look at pioneers today as, as like church planners. A church planner moves into a city, um, studies the city, uh, obeys God, goes to a place, and then says, I believe that the Lord has a, a desire to start a, a body of believers right here, an ecclesia, a called out ones, a group of people. So, so this is a, a church plant. Now, as a church planter, one of the things that we found out is we started as a home fellowship, and then we moved into a small um, section of Gavilan College in Gilroy. And I remember when we, we planted the church that people would walk in, and I remember them just kind of looking around like, this is it? You know, this is, this is kind of, this is the church? And, and some of you remember that when uh, you were meeting at the, the Vets Hall in downtown Santa Cruz, if you were there in the beginning, or you, at VHM, setting up chairs, and people walk in, and they're just kind of like curious, like, man, you guys, this is church? Now, for me growing up in the Catholic Church, it was really different because the, the first church that I went to outside of the Catholic Church was in a Safeway. You know, it was a store that was converted into a church, and there, were like, there was no steeple, there were no bells, there was no stained glass, and it just it looked different. As a pioneer, pioneers go into places that, that that doesn't exist yet, but God has put something in their heart, and there's a vision to do that. Now, some people are settlers, and, and before we say that settlers are weak and pioneers are strong, let me explain this. Sometimes settlers come in and they look around and they say, well, you know, I have kids and I really want a ministry to minister to my kids. You know, I want a youth group or I, I want something for, uh, you know, I'm in college and I want a college group. And so maybe as a settler, you, you think, well, I'll come back and I'll check it out when it's settled. You know, when everything is kind of established and we have a, a str- there's a strong presence there. And we experienced that. We planted the church. People came to visit. And some people came back two, three years later. Some people five years later. And they came back and they say, we, we visited you guys and you're a home fellowship. Or, in fact, um, Joe Shoup. Uh, I remember when Joe Shoup came into our home fellowship. And they live in Hollister. So we were in Gilroy. And they, they came in. And, and Joe was a fairly new believer. So I remember that uh, he came in and... I think he thought that, like he kind of looked around, we we're meeting in a living room and like, wow, this is, this is the church. And uh, Simon, he was a, a part of that. The basement was our youth group and uh, you know, the youth get up. And so like three kids would get up and that was like half of the people in the living room. And that was like the youth group. And, and so you have that, but let me say that, <clears throat> excuse me, settlers 
are very important as well because settlers, they, they bring um, a vision for how to do ministry in a place. Think about it this way. A, a settler isn't so much a business startup as much as someone that comes in and says, we need infrastructure. We need organization. We need a plan. Uh, we need to have a calendar. I mean, sometimes some people that are gifted in administration bring this incredible brilliance by saying, did we plan this? Uh, no, we didn't. Plan. Well, did we think about food? Did we think about childcare? Did we think about how this is scheduled on top of this and these things that are going on? And so all of that is necessary. And when we read Nehemiah chapter 11, you're going to find out that there are people that are implemented into that as, as settlers into the city. But before that, more important than organization, more important than structure, more important than um, having this incredibly organized system, it's where is my heart? Where is my heart today? So as a church, we have some walls. There's a roof over our heads. Uh, there's a, a microphone so that you're able to hear me. But yet if my heart isn't there and your heart isn't there, all we are is a group of people that are gathered together. But when the Spirit of God is there working in and amongst the people of God, what happens is you see something special. So as God led them back, I want you to read with me in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. This is the end of the longest prayer in the whole Old Testament. So if you're ever wondering, what, what is the longest prayer in the Bible? Well, in the Old Testament, it's right here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And at the end of it, all of, Nehemiah, all of the people are together. They're leading the prayer. And remember this, the walls at this point have been built. Jerusalem was, was totally um, messed up. It was broken down. They started to rebuild. And now they're consecrating themselves to the Lord. And this prayer be, um, ends with verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. I want you to notice something, that as they consider what God has done, and they end this prayer, and, and maybe at the end of the year, you, you're contemplative, you, you think about the past year, you think about things that you've done, things that have happened to you. At the end of this captivity, when God allows his people to come back to Jerusalem, instead of being angry at God, they say, God, whatever has befallen us, you're still good. And this morning, can you say that? Can you look back at 2012? And can you think about things that have happened to you? Difficulties, trials. And through it all, no matter what has happened, can you look back and say, God, you are still good. See, the people of Israel, when they gathered together and they prayed, these, they said, all of these things that have come upon us, even the troubles, even the difficulty... You are just in all that has befallen us. This morning, can you trust in God's sovereignty? Now, I know that some of you are going through tremendous trials because I've talked to you. I know that some of you in 2012 went through a breakup of a relationship. 
I know that some of you are going through heartache. You're going through a lot of pain because of a a betrayal. Some of you are going through the pain because of mistakes that you made. And you look back at 2012 and think, I brought this on myself. And you're trying to dig your way out of this hole. Some of you financially made some really poor choices. And now this debt is hanging over your head. Some of you found out in 2012 that you were sick. And a doctor said, this is the prognosis. And this morning, it's not about organization. It's about where's my heart. And can I still say, God, you are good. And in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of trial, in the middle of pain, God, you are still good. See, when it comes down to it, if we understand it in this way, and if you're, if you're visiting this morning, I'm so glad that you're here so that you can understand this. So many times, uh, and, and if you're not visiting, you've been here for a while, we as Christians, we sometimes look at our lives and we look at trials and we determine whether or not God loves us based on how things are going at any given moment. And I've heard it said before, um, this expression, God must hate me. God must hate me because look at my life. Look at how things are going. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So my sin, and what sin is, it's rebellion towards God. It's saying, I'm going to do things my way. It's about pride. It's about me. Anything that, that God does... God is sovereign, he's loving, and I need to be able to trust him because what I deserve is death. What you deserve is death. We deserve separation from God. But God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. That's what we celebrated at Christmas. Jesus came into this world. The Savior came down because God loved us so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so if we are alive today, it's because of God's mercy. If you are here today seeking the Lord, it's because the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself. And no matter what has happened, whether good or bad, blessing or trial, God loves us. And it's not dependent upon our performance. His love is not dependent upon, hey, I'm doing good this week. God loves me this week. I'm doing really bad this week. God hates me this week. God's love is the constant in it all. And so because of that, when Nehemiah and the people came together and they began to pray, they said, whatever has happened to us, God, you are still just. You're still good. But they say, we have dealt, uh, we have done wickedly. And I could look at anything that is bad that I have done and I cannot blame God for my sin. Now, our past has an effect on us. It, uh, it, It would be, Wrong to say our past it doesn't count, it, you know, it's, it doesn't have any effect. But I believe that sometimes in looking back, we could blame everything on our past and we could stop taking responsibility for our own lives before God. And what they are doing, not only individually, but as a group, they're saying, God, we're taking responsibility for our own sin. We're not going to blame it on how we were brought up. We're not going to blame it on the Babylonians. We're not going to blame it on our culture. We're not going to blame it on this world. We're not going to blame it on things that have happened to us in our past. God, we take responsibility for our own sin. Can can we do that this morning? Not only individually, but collectively as a body of Christ. See, I think that part of our time of prayer during these next 21 days, it reminds us when Jesus taught us to pray, 
Do you remember the part of the Lord's Prayer? We know it as the Lord's Prayer. He said, forgive what? Us, our, our trespasses as what? As we forgive those that is trespassed against us. And I want you to notice that that is in the plural. When Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't teach us to pray, forgive me. Now that's important. But in that model prayer, he's reminding us that we're all connected. Our, we call it the Our Father, right? And notice not, it, that prayer is not called the My Father. <laughs> you know, I, I just prayed the My Father. No, we prayed the Our Father because it's not just me. It's us. And so as a body of Christ, it's so important. When Nehemiah confessed his own sin at the beginning of the book that we were, were studying, he said, both I and my father's house have sinned. This morning in the book of Isaiah, we looked at how Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. You know, the train of his robe filled the temple. And then, and then Isaiah said, um, woe is me for I am undone, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And then he said, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah was a Jew. He was an Israelite. Those were God's people. And you know, as we're praying these next 21 days, it's not just about me and my own life before the Lord, but God cleanse us as a body. God cleanse us from pride. Um, as a church, cleanse us from, from lust. As a church, cleanse us from selfishness. As a church, cleanse us from indifference and just not caring about other people. As a church, cleanse us from our lukewarm spirit that sees the world around us as them and not just people that need to be saved. Jesus saw the, the multitudes as what? Sheep without a shepherd. God cleanses for when we think that that's the enemy. God cleanses from all of these things that divide the body of Christ. And as we do that, you know what the Holy Spirit does? He renews us. He builds us. He restores us. He strengthens us. You know, this year I'm so excited about God taking that proper place in my life personally, in my family, in the church, but then reaching out beyond these walls. So in Nehemiah, as they say, we have done faithful, um, you have dealt faithfully, we have done wickedly. Um, they go on to, to pray this. Notice what it says in verse 37, because we've already studied this, I'm reviewing. It says, it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. God allowed a foreign country to come in and to take over the city of Jerusalem. God allowed the Babylonians to wipe it out, and now they were in subjection to this other country, to their kings, to their decrees. And you know, when it comes to government and, and you know, it comes to looking at our own country, we have to understand that as a nation as a whole, we get the government that we deserve. And if a government is unrighteous and we just say, it's the government that's unrighteous, oh, it's government, you know, it, it begins with us. And for us as believers, not to point the finger at others, but God cleanse me. God work in my heart. God work in this church, work in my family. In verse 38, it says, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and we write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests, they seal it. And so they wrote this covenant. They made it very personal. They said, our leaders are going to sign it. But then when we get to chapter 10, what happens is they all ratify the covenant. 
And what did the covenant do? The covenant showed God, all of these things, we are, we are admitting our fault, not in our pride, but in our humility. We're saying, God, we've, we've messed up. So in this covenant, in verse one of chapter 10, it says, those who placed their seal on the document were these people, Nehemiah, the governor, and then the list of the others, the, the priests, the Levites. I want you to go down to verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28 says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, uh, the Nethanim, and all of those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk God's law. Now I want you to listen to how serious they were taking this. Everyone that could understand what the covenant meant, they came forward and willingly said, I want to sign on. I want to be a part of this. They weren't casual observers. You know, when it comes to covenant, um, maybe you've heard this analogy before about commitment. And a farmer is having a breakfast. He's going to have a bunch of friends over for breakfast. And he meets with all of the farm animals and he says, okay, we're, going to, we're all going to pitch in. Everyone, I want you to pitch into breakfast and, and, and I want you to donate something. So the chicken says, okay, you know, the hen, I'll, I'll lay some eggs. You could have the eggs. And the farmer says, okay, great. And then the, the farmer looks over at the cows and one of the cows says, okay, I'll give you some of my milk. Okay, great. I'll take some of the milk. And then the farmer stares at the pig. <laughs> and for the pig, it's total commitment because... When it comes to our walk with God, we have to, I think that sometimes we could be a part of what God is doing and say, well, I'm a casual observer. I'm, I'm a consumer. I like what the body of Christ has to offer. So I like coming on a Sunday morning. You know, it's, um, I learn and there's some growth that happens there and uh, I, get to, I get to sing and I get to participate. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to commitment, it means I'm committed to the people that are next to me. It means that I'm willing to love other people, invite them over into our homes um, to pray for them. I'm willing to go through trials with them. I'm willing to go through difficulties because we're so individualistic in our society and in our culture. You know, we have fences. You know, we have gates. Porches used to be really big in the design of homes. And, and porches were places that, that neighbors gathered and they, they sat on porches. They drank lemonade. They talked. You know, they had interaction. And how many, how few of us know our neighbors today? You know, we might even recognize them. I think that guy's my neighbor. I think, I think she lives, I think she lives next to me. And, 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 and yet God wants us to reach out beyond that. And so as they gather together, they all sign into this covenant, whomever could understand, and they were all committed to it. And notice that when they were committed, it was not just the fathers and the mothers it was their sons and their daughters, which means if you are a parent, if you're a grandparent, it is so important that you explain to your kids not only what we do and why we worship or how we worship, but why. I, I don't want my kids to be rule observers. I don't want my kids to be Pharisees and to know all of the rigors of what the commandments are and morality. I want, I want their hearts. In Proverbs, uh, do you remember the, the writer of Proverbs said, my son, give me your heart. That's what I want. 
That's what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. He doesn't just want outward obedience. And therefore, it was important that they all understood the covenant that they were a part of. And as they signed this covenant, they, they set themselves apart from the things of the world. They, they decided, God, you are going to be priority. And so they weren't going to assimilate into the, the ethic and the culture of the Babylonians. They were to separate. Now, what does that mean to separate? Um, Jesus said that we are to be in the world, but what? Not of it. In the world, but not of the world. So that means that we're in the world, and it, it doesn't mean that we, we pull aside and we all move to, you know, the country, and, you know, we go up to Idaho or, you know, we, we buy a big piece of land and we build a big fortress around it with electric fences and we get sniper rifles and, and we're, we're set apart for God. You know, me and my family, we're holy and this is our place and, and no outside influence and no, you know, no one's going to influence our home and we're, we're just going to do this here. And please don't get me wrong. <laughs> if, if you have a desire to raise your family in a way that you're not influenced as much by the culture, I understand that. But we're to be salt and light, which means we need to know people in the world. And we need to be friends with people that are in the world. Not friendship of the world, not the world system, but I'm telling you, people will never care how much we know until what? They know how much you care. And that's why we need, it is so important in the body of Christ. If, if everyone went full-time ministry and served in a church, there'd be no salt, no light. I'm so glad that some of you feel called not to be full-time in ministry in a church, but full-time in ministry outside of a church. Because if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're following the Lord, you and I are missionaries wherever we are. The only question is, what is my mission field? And if you go to a school, that's your mission field. And if you work at an office, that's your mission field. And if you're a part of a team, that's your mission field. And if you're in a classroom, that's your mission field. And if you're in a neighborhood, that's your mission field. And yes, God sometimes calls some of us outside of our own culture to another place where there's a need. And he burdens special people to be pioneers to go out to those types of places. That's why foreign missions is so important. One of the desires going forward is that every one of us would go on a missions trip. Because it doesn't mean that we'll stay out there. It means that we take that vision and understand it and we come back to our own area. And we say, God, help me to live as a missionary here. So when we consider these things... Um, what was this covenant about? It was about bringing their first fruits, priority. Now, the law of the tithe in the Old Testament was that not just 10%, because it was also a free will offering on top of that. There was um, their fruits. So their best fruits would be given to God, the best of their livestock. There was their finances. The firstborn would be consecrated to God. All of that was saying, God, you have priority in our lives. Now, we are not under the law. But nevertheless, the spirit of the law still applies. Am I giving God priority in my time? Or is he left over? Like, you know what? I'll, I'll spend some time with the Lord if I have time. Well, guess what? We all have time, right? It's just what we do with our time. I'll serve others. I'll be involved in ministry and serving other people when I feel like it. I, I think it's... It's kind of a, a sad thing sometimes when we say, 
You know, we look at a piece of clothing. I've said that before, and we go, oh, this is so ugly. I can't believe that someone gave this to me or I ever wore this. You know, I'm going to give it away. It will really bless someone, you know, and and, uh, this will be a a great thing. Um, God wants our best. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with hand-me-downs and things like that, but I'll tell you what. God wants our first fruits, not our leftovers. He wants priority in our lives because what that does is it shows us, it shows God that in worship, God, we're putting you before ourselves, before our own desires and what we want. And so that was a part of the covenant. And then when we get to chapter 11, one of the things that you're going to see is they weren't just tithing their money. They weren't just tithing of their their produce and their flocks and their herds. You're going to find out that they tithed even of themselves. And let me explain how they do this as we read. It says in Nehemiah chapter 11, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people, what did they do? They cast lots to bring one out of ten, that's a tithe, one-tenth to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. What happened? Jerusalem got decimated. They got wiped out. And when they got absolutely wiped out, the city was messed up and everyone left the city. They started living in in suburbs and they started living in the mountains and they started living in other places. But the city was in shambles. Now what happened is God caused Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then Nehemiah to come back to help restore the people, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls around the city. Now they had to repopulate the city. And it was a difficult place to live. You know what they needed? They needed pioneers. They needed people to come into a place that was absolutely broken down to say, God, I will go. And what they did is, so that Nehemiah wouldn't be the one that sent them, they said, we trust God to, in the book of Proverbs, to be the one that causes the lot to fall on whom he may. So they said, we willingly, we, we enter ourselves into this. It's kind of like registering for the draft. If you're 18 and you register for the draft, you register for the draft. Now, if there was ever a draft, some people would get chosen. They willingly did this. And 10% said, we will willingly move back into Jerusalem to help rebuild the city. And you know what they were doing in a sense is they were tithing themselves. And this morning, can I say, God, wherever you want to send me, Now, I know that some of you may think, hey, I'm not a missionary. I want you to know that missionaries are not born out of the womb uh, longing for jungles. You know, missionaries, they aren't born like uh, just desiring to eat, you know, exotic foods and to move into difficult places. I know missionaries that were businesswomen, businessmen. I know missionaries that were just, you know, homeschool moms. I I know missionaries that were landscapers. I know missionaries that were construction workers. I know missionaries that were business people, teachers, every aspect. But all they did is said, God, where do you want to send me? And so this morning, can I do that without fear? Or am I afraid to say, God, where do you want to send me? Because you might send me over there. (laughs) You know, I don't want to go to that place. And, And God... If we, if we trust God with our soul, if we trust God with our salvation, with our eternal destiny, can we not trust him for what he wants to do today? Can we not trust him to say, God, you're a good God. Wherever you want to send me, I know it will be good. It could be hard. It could be difficult. 
but I know it will be good because it's what you're desiring of me. And so that's what they did. One-tenth of them, they went back to dwell um, in Jerusalem, nine-tenths to dwell in other cities. And then it says this in verse 2, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Why do we support missionaries? If we did not support foreign missionaries financially, then they would have to move into a place that is a very difficult place. For example, um, Ecuador, the Philippines, you know, poor places, Haiti. And they would have to work, and the wages are very low. And they would have to work 70 hours a week just to be able to survive. And they would not have the time to be able to minister to people and to reach people. And so the other people that did not go into Jerusalem, it says the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. How did they bless them? There was a financial part of it, but there was also a prayer part of it. And that's the need for missions, to support financially, also to pray, to bless those. And, and I love it because as they do this, um, they go into this place I want to read this to you. This is kind of crazy just because it's relevant to today. Um, whatever your your news source is, you, you could read about it, and there's different slants that are out there. But this is just December 4th, 2012, so this is a, about a month ago. Um, in the Jerusalem Post, it says, Israel decided Thursday to approve the construction of an additional 3,000 housing units in Jerusalem and the West Bank, reports Yenet News. In addition, the planning procedures of thousands of additional housing units in Jerusalem and the settlement blocks will be furthered, including the segment connecting uh, Adumim with Jerusalem, known as the E1 Project. Okay, what does that mean? If you watch the news, you find out that there are missiles that are flying. And if you go to the borders, there are rockets that are flying all the time. And and there are attacks that are just random with with. Thousands of rockets flying into Israel. But there are people that are Jews, that are Israelites, that say, I want to move to that place and repopulate it. I want to live there. Now, why in the world would you want to live there? I just, I just think about how, as Americans, how we think about where we want to live. Where do I want to live? I want to check out the schools. You know, what were their test scores? You know, I want to live in a place where, you know, where's, what's the crime rate? You know, can I see the beach from my house? Um, is it sunny? Am I in the sun belt? Am I, you know, we ask all these different things, and we want to test all of these things. You know what they do? They say, well, this place is war-torn, and it's a controversial place, but this is our land, and so we want to move there. And they willingly want to move there. And the reason why I bring that up here in the context of Jerusalem is that it was a very difficult place to move back into the city. And I want to I encourage and exhort us to say, God, help me to do whatever you want me to do. And sometimes I hear people, and this is the, the phrase, you know, I, I just got to leave my job. Well, why? I'm the only Christian there. I am the only, if I could expound it, I'm the only light. I'm the only person that could bring the gospel message. I'm the only person that could reach out and show them the love of Christ by my example. I need to quit and go to a place where there's more light so we could all congregate together as lights and be one big light. See, we're to be salt. We've got to get out of the salt shaker. And sometimes God calls us into difficult situations, not just geographically, but situationally. 
not just where you live. Some of you have some friends that that friendship is a very difficult friendship. Um, extra grace required, EGR, you know, there's this friendship, man. Extra grace is required right here. And, and just in case you're thinking about those people, those EGRs in your own life, I want you to know there's probably some people that are thinking about you in the same way, right? And thinking about me, you know, extra grace required. Man, every time I'm around Matt, it's just like, man, it's hard. You know, it just, it just makes it tough on me. I, I got I to gotta kind of gear up. And God calls us into situations that are difficult so that we're not only reliant upon him, but because we're to show people the love of Christ. We're to show people grace. Why? Because he's been gracious to us. The standard that you use to judge other people, would you want God to use the same standard on you? Would you want God to use your same measure of mercy on you as you use on other people? See, what they do is they gather together and they willingly go. They offer themselves. They were pioneers. In verse 3, these are the heads. These are the leaders of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem. Um, the Israelites, the priests, the Nethanim, the, the descendants of Solomon's servants. And then I'm going to break it up. We're not going to in-depth into each verse, but I want you to notice right here what happens next. It says in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 4, the second part of that, the children of Judah. So this is Judah. This is the tribe of Judah that went to j- dwell in Jerusalem. And, and it, note, it notes, um, Nehemiah records the children of Judah. And I want you to know that it's the children of, it's the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Perez, and of Messiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kol Hezoh, the, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of uh, Joriab, the son of Zechariah, the son of Shaloni. All the sons in verse 6 of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. This morning, dads, I want you to hear what, what this scripture is saying to us. The names of these fathers were listed. Now, again, in Jewish culture, in Israeli culture at this time, the genealogy is listed through the men. But I really believe there's something else that's happening here. These men were leaders. Now, women can be leaders as well. But it is important to understand that the roles of men and women, scripturally, there is a difference. We are not androgynous beings. We are not, I just feel like a woman, so I'm a woman. I feel like I'm a man, I'm a man. Whatever you feel like being, that's who you are. No, we are defined by biology, but we are also defined by theology. God is the one that instituted Genesis chapter 1, male and female. And there are roles. And because there are roles, I really believe one of the greatest, the greatest tragedies in our world today is so many kids that are raised without the presence of a father and a mother at the same time. But, but fathers, you know, usually it's the mother. And again, it's a broad brush, but I want to make sure that we understand that it's a broad brush because it's the majority. The majority of the mothers are the ones that are at home with the kids or raising the kids in single parent families. There are some single parent fathers and my hats go off to my hat goes off to you. I absolutely admire that because that is a, a, a huge calling. And some of you understand that, but I'll tell you what, there are many, many single parent homes in which a father's presence is absent. 
And there are many two-parent homes in which a father's presence is absent. And fathers must be leaders. We need to lead by example. And to be a man doesn't mean that you need to beat everyone up. You don't have to be the toughest. You don't have to be enrolled in martial arts to be a, a man. You don't have to, you know, be, you know, these, these macho guys. I'll tell you what, you could be a, a pretty, pretty wimpy guy, you know, physically. If you take initiative, if you take responsibility, and if you lead by example and you serve and you lead boldly, that's what a man is. And our world has it all messed up what a man is. A man is macho, a man has all these women, a man has this nice car, a man has these jobs. A man, No, you know what a man is? A man is one that takes care of his responsibility, takes care of those whom he loves. And Jesus sets the example for us because Jesus did not die for his own sins. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus took responsibility for me. He took responsibility for you. He is the perfect Adam, the second Adam, the one that we should follow. It's one of the great lessons from here in the book of Nehemiah. And you know what? If you are 12, 13 years old, in a lot of cultures, you're a man. In a lot of cultures, you're considered a man. It's important that in our culture, we take responsibility as men. It goes on um, in verse 10, um, or verse 7, the sons of Benjamin. And, and it notes some people that are overseers. In verse 10, the priests of Jediah, uh, the son of Jorib, um, and Jachin, and Sariah, the son of Hil- Hilkiah, And then notice it it goes on to say the leader of the house of God and their brethren who did the work on the house. And so all of these in verse 14 and their brethren, notice mighty men of valor were 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. In leadership, when God ordains leadership, it does not mean that someone's role makes that person intrinsically of more value than anyone else. My role as a pastor does not make me more valuable to God intrinsically than any one of you. We are all, God loves us all equally, but there are different roles. And because there are different roles, those roles come with responsibility, not one better than the other. But the question again is, God, where do you have me in the body of Christ? Maybe your position in the family, maybe you're the youngest in your family. And you think, well, I'm just I'm just the youngest, so I really can't have an effect on my family. And notice how many times in the Bible that God chose to use the youngest. Why? Because no one expected the the youngest to lead. No one expected that from them. And maybe you think, well, my position in my company, in my family, in, in my situation, I'm the least. Praise God. You know what? God can use you. Absolutely. And so there are different roles. As a pastor, um, I, I really believe one of the reasons why I am a pastor is because I know that if I weren't, I'd get in so much trouble. I, I, I absolutely know that. God has to keep me around the things of God often. I have to be constantly thinking about those things because I know I could get in a, a ton of trouble. And so it's important that we don't see people as more valuable than, than other people. And then I want you to notice what happens in verse 16. It says, um, Shabbatiah and Josabad, the head of the Levites, had oversight of what? Business outside of the house of God. Did you know that outside of the house of God, you are still in full-time ministry? If you're a believer, you're still in full-time ministry. So I just had dinner with um, some people that are missionaries now and going to the mission field. 
Um, I had dinner with Theo. He's at the missions conference right now in Costa Mesa. Uh, we had the Petricks over. We had the Browers over, and, and we were talking about missions. And, and I met with Don and with Stacy um, not too long ago because Don and Stacy are, are going to go down to Peru, and they're going to join Ryan and Nicole as well as the Petricks. So, wow, that leaves a hole. That leaves a big, big hole because they're, they're good people. They're great people. And yet, you know what? When God sent Paul and Barnabas, who did he send? He sent his best. God sent the best. And, and I'm not saying better intrinsically of value. I'm just saying that, that, hey, we shouldn't hold on to everything tightly. We should say, God, wherever you want to send us, wherever you want to send people, and then, Lord, raise people up. And that's why I'm, I'm asking you, where is your part in the body? Where is your role? Because you know what? We're either missionaries or we're consumers. We're either missionaries or we're consumers. I don't want to be a consumer. I want to be a missionary. I want to do what God has called me to do. I want to make a difference in my world. And so as, as they do this, notice there were some that were overseeing the outside house of, of God, outside of the house. So, so strategically, if you live in the mountains, if you're in Ben Loman, if you are in you know, Felton, God has missionaries there. If you're in Aptos, we have missionaries in Aptos. If you're in the middle of Live Oak, if you're in Midtown, we have missionaries there. If you're in Scotts Valley, we have missionaries in Scotts Valley. If you're in wherever you live, think about it that way. There are missionaries all over the valley, all over this area. How can God use us? How can God work in us and through us? And then in verse 19, moreover, the gatekeepers were there. What is a gatekeeper? Someone that lets people in and keeps people out. As gatekeepers, we need gates. Lord, where do we want to open up? Where do you want to open up another gate? You know, I think about Westside Community Church. I think of Calvary Capitola. Those are gates. There's some gates that are open for people to come from the community to meet. God, where else do you want to open up gates? How else do you want to start new ministries? How else do you want to work in 2013 and beyond? God, where do you want to open up a gate in 2013? And then gatekeepers keep things out. Not people out from coming to worship, but influence from the world. We need to be gatekeepers of our own hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your hearts, for out of it flows the issues of life. I need to guard my heart from things that will influence the way that I think and the way that I live. And then there were overseers of the Levites, and there were singers, and there were um, the villagers. And then in verse 25, notice, and as for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirjath Arba and its villages. And, and it, notice what it says in verse 34, in Hadid, in, in Zaboim, in Nebat, in Lod, in Ono, and the valley of the craftsmen. Some of the Judean divisions of the Levites were in Benjamin. And so what you see is that God has a field. And he divides people up into the field that they should be in. This morning, where is your mission field? Where does God have you strategically? And you might not think, hey, it's any big deal. It's not a real mission field. Ask God to open your eyes. God, open my eyes and help me to see my classroom. Help me to see my team. Help me to see my friends. Help me to see my neighbors as a mission field. And what will happen is God will open up your eyes to see things as you had never seen them. You know, when I was a Christian in high school, I remember praying this prayer. I went to the same school my freshman and sophomore year that I did my junior and senior year. 
But the summer of my sophomore and junior year, I said, God, open up my eyes. I was reading through the book of Nehemiah. I was being discipled by my youth pastor. We went through victorious Christian service. And I said, God, show me West Covina High School as you see it. Open up my eyes. And you know what? My heart was broken. It was broken for people that their lockers were next to me. It was broken for people in my classroom. It was broken for people that I didn't like. And my heart became knit to theirs. You know, I'm so blessed. There was a a girl that when I was in high school, I had an opportunity to to witness to. I don't know if she remembers that or not, but she found out that my daughter, Rebecca, is going to Spain um, next semester to study. And she Facebooked me and said, hey, Matt, I heard your daughter's going to be in Spain. I graduated from USC, and now I, I majored in Spanish. I live in Spain. It would be great if she can come and have dinner at our house. And you know what? I'm praying that God opens up a door for that because you know what? Missions is everywhere. And the seeds that you plant today, you have no idea how the Lord's going to water it in the future. You have no idea what God is doing. So as we close, I want to close with this, our theme going through the whole book of Nehemiah. Um, Jerusalem was a city literally on a hill. They call it a tell. It was on the top of a hill so that people could see. And Jesus said something. You are what? A city that is on a hill. Uh, Santa Cruz County is an amazing and diverse community, yet within that community is a church. What's a church? An ecclesia, a gathering of people, the called out ones, that has responded to the good news that Jesus came and died for our sin to restore our broken fellowship with God. We are a church that responds to God's great love by following him and loving others. It's our hope that as God's spirit changes us and we live according to his word, it draws others to follow him along with us. That's our mission. That's our theme in the book of Nehemiah. This is what God has called us to, to be a city that is set on the hill. And you know what? Jesus said it this way. How will they know that we're believers? By our bumper stickers, right? No, he didn't say that. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. When people come into the body of Christ and they sense the love of Christ there, they come into your home and they sense something different there. They, they work side by side. They go to school with you. They see something different. That's the light that God wants to bring. And then that city that is set on a hill to live in a way that bids other people to follow. And so we're going to close and have the worship team come up. This morning, where is your mission field? How has God called you? Has he, how has he called me? If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, let me explain what that means. It simply means that you desire to worship God, to know him, to be forgiven, to ask God to come into your life. And it's only possible because even though we deserve death, Jesus died for our sins. We are going to participate in communion. And communion represents the body of Christ. That's when we take the bread and, and that, that's the body of Christ that was broken for us. Jesus went through a brutal beating on our behalf. The, the cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed so that we could be forgiven. And we are not to partake lightly in an unworthy manner. And what that means, an unworthy manner is a manner in which we think, well, I can't do it because I'm not good enough or I need to earn it. You know, an unworthy manner is not understanding and discerning how precious that blood is and what God has done for us. Because if we thought, well, a worthy manner is by living a good life, and I've been pretty good this week, so I could partake in communion, that is not what it's saying. None of us is good enough. 
None of us deserves to partake in what we're about to partake in. But this morning, if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can partake as well by praying a prayer of faith by receiving Christ. So I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to begin to worship, and we're going to partake in communion together. So by faith, if you've never received Christ, then you pray this prayer. Um, again, not a mantra, not magic words, but really the condition of your heart. Father, I want to thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. And I don't even understand all of what that means, but I know that I need to be forgiven. And I repent. I, I turn from my selfishness. I turn from, from declaring that I am the master of my own fate. I turn from my pride and my self-sufficiency. And I humble myself before you. And I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. That you would change me. That you would help me to follow Christ. Forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord Jesus, for us as believers that have already entered into that walk, that relationship with you. God, this morning we want to declare none of us is worthy. None of us is righteous in our own righteousness. But we thank you for that exchange. We thank you, Jesus, that you took our unrighteousness and our sin upon yourself so that you could impart to us your righteous standing. God, I don't fathom that exchange, but God, I'm so glad that you offer it. And Lord, as we partake in communion, we want to remember, Jesus, what you've done for us. We want to remember not only the life that you lived, but the death that shed the blood that was so precious, that was an offering for us. And Jesus, we thank you that when we partake in communion, we're not only partaking in communion, thinking about your death, but we're looking forward to being with you. We're looking forward to that resurrection, Lord, in which all believers would sit at a table to share a meal together with you. Until that time, Lord, we thank you for this symbol of remembrance. We ask that you would cleanse our hearts. And again, Lord, we are asking that you would show us our mission field. Jesus, you came as a missionary to us, to our world, to live amongst us. When we partake of communion, may we remember that. May we be grateful. And we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.